after the recession that hit in about 2008, there were economists using uh, a new language to describe the new situation that we were in. And they would describe the economic situation as a new normal. Things didn't just return back as they have always returned, but rather there seemed to be new trends, new paradigms emerging. So they called it a new normal. Now I have a good friend who is retired, but who has also been diagnosed with a progressively debilitating disease. And when I ask him how he's doing, I can always tell when something is happening with that disease because he'll say, well, this is just a new normal for me. Now, let me be clear. He is not giving up. He is not giving in. But he is a realist dealing with the realities of change that his situation is calling for him to deal with. And he calls it a new normal. The truth is, life is filled with change. It is filled with a series of new normals for all of us. Students who go to elementary school will have a new normal when they go to high school. And they'll have a new normal when they go to college. And they'll have a new normal when they go to grad school. When a single person gets married, it's a new normal. Instead of me, it's we. Or when a couple get divorced, it's a new normal. Things have changed. When you switch your job, it's a new normal. And when a person comes to faith, it's a new normal. And thank God for that. Life is filled with change. A whole series of changes. And with each change comes challenge for each and every one of us. Those challenges and changes represent new normals in our lives. And today, I want us to consider the new normals that we have to face and how we can best work with God in them. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to just do a one-off from any of the series that we've been working through. In part because as my tenure as senior pastor is coming to an end, I have longed to preach this message to you. And I have longed to preach it to me. It is relevant in my personal life as well as yours, but it is also relevant in our collective lives. And I hope that God will speak to us in powerful ways today so that we know how to best work with God in the new normals. Now let's be honest. Some of these new normals are thrust upon us like my friend. But other new normals 
are because of our choice, such as my choice to retire. All of the new normals, whether they are thrust upon us or whether we choose them, at some point will bring things into our life that move us out of our comfort zone. And the reality is, in part, this fallen human nature is such that it gravitates towards stasis, homeostasis. It likes to be in comfort. This morning we're going to look at what Jesus said about the new normal of His presence in the world. And if you have your Bible, open it up to Luke 5, 33-39. If not, don't worry about it. We'll put it up on the screen. Dr. Luke writes that when Jesus called Levi, a tax collector, to become one of his disciples, Levi, who is also known as Matthew, decides to throw a party for Jesus. And he invites all of his tax-collecting friends, whom the Scriptures tell us the good religious people thought of as sinners. Rotten, dirty sinners. But in Jesus' time, when you threw a big celebration, you also invited the outstanding people of the community, which meant that the good religious leaders of the local synagogue of Capernaum would have been invited to the party as well. And Dr. Luke identifies them in his text as the scribes and Pharisees. So here we have Jesus, we have the disciples, we have Matthew's tax-collecting friends, and we have, from the synagogue, scribes and Pharisees who are leaders of the religious community at Capernaum. Dr. Luke records that these scribes and Pharisees carefully watched Jesus and His disciples. They asked Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? As though, because he claims to be a religious man, he would not associate with sinners. Jesus answers their question. Then they ask, why is it that your disciples do not observe the religious traditions of fasting and praying like we do. Why, even John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray. So let's read the text, because this is the context for it. Beginning with verse 33. And they said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. 
He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the old will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skin will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. And then Jesus added this. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now to be sure, fasting and prayer had a very rich heritage in Judaism. They were considered to be acts of worship. The Day of Atonement was celebrated with a fast. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was commemorated by a four-day fast among the Jewish people. Fasts were observed as acts of penance, and were often associated with mourning. And in fact, the Pharisees fasted two days every week as they offered prayers of intercession for the nation. Now these scribes and Pharisees were asking Jesus the question, why aren't you like us? Even John the Baptist and his disciples are like us. And Jesus' answer was quite startling. He said in essence that God is doing a new thing. A different thing. This is a new time and Jesus is the focal point of that new time. He uses the imagery of a wedding feast, and he uses two parables. The parable of a garment that needs mending, and the parable of wine in wineskins. So let's look at this imagery and these parables to understand what Jesus has to say about the new normal that he was ushering in. Jesus was describing the circumstance and taking it out of the context that the scribes and Pharisees were suggesting it ought to be in. Jesus was setting the scene as a wedding. A bridegroom and the wedding guests. He was referring to himself as the bridegroom and they would have understood that. And therefore, they would have understood that the disciples were a wedding guest. And what he was saying is it's inappropriate. It's just not appropriate to be in mourning at a wedding. A wedding is meant to be a celebration. Different time. He doesn't explain it. He just simply tells them this. 
It's not a time for fasting, but for celebrating. Then Jesus, though, says that there will come a time when the disciples will fast. And he describes that time as his own death. He's not telling them exactly that that's what it is, but that's what he's alluding to. And it is his atoning death that will usher in this new thing which God is doing. This new thing which will be the forgiveness of sin for all by faith in the Messiah. God. God with us. Who has come to pay that debt. Jesus goes on then to tell two parables. He tells the first, the parable of the garment that needs mending. And Jesus, again, is alluding to the fact that He's the new cloth. And He says, no tailor or seamstress would ever sew a new piece of cloth to patch an old garment. It produces two problems. First, the new cloth is ruined. Second, it will tear from the old garment. Ruining both. And it won't even match. Jesus is saying the new and the old do not go together. God is doing a new thing through Him. To try to blend them together is to ruin both. Jesus is ushering in a new time. A progressive revelation of God's redemptive plan for humanity and the world. I'll explain that just a little bit further. In a second. Jesus tells them the second parable of the wine and the wineskins. Jesus is the new wine. And like all new wine, it ferments. The process of that is what makes the wine good. And while it's fermenting, it's producing gases. So the wineskin has to be flexible enough to allow the wine to expand. And if they use an old wineskin, which is dried out, and doesn't have any more elasticity to it, it will eventually burst. And the wine will spill out and be useless. And the wineskin will never again hold wine in it. Jesus was suggesting that the new and the old have different natures to them. The new spirit that Jesus was bringing requires a new way and a new form. And let me add this about this particular parable. Because down through the centuries, this parable is often associated with the Holy Spirit. Wine and the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, then we can 
assume, and rightly so, that the Holy Spirit cannot be contained, nor can it be constrained. God is doing a new work through the Holy Spirit that will be given to all people who believe upon His Son, Jesus. The old and the new have different natures, even though they do go together. They represent the progressive revelation of God's plan for the redemption of humanity and history. But as such, they cannot be blended. Let me see if I can explain. We have the ability to look back in hindsight. They did not because Jesus was ushering this in. We look back in our Scriptures and we see that there is an Old Testament and a New Testament. An Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Old Covenant is the covenant of the law. And the New Covenant is the covenant through the Gospel. And the law and the Gospel are of a different nature. So we have the giving of the law and we have the giving of the cross. The Gospel. The law condemns the Gospel pardons. The law teaches us of sin and our need for a Savior. The Gospel teaches us of what God has done to save us. The law reveals the impossibility of living holy lives through our own self-effort, while the Gospel reveals that holy living is possible through the Holy Spirit. It is a gift to all who believe upon the Son of God. The condemnation that comes through the law brings death, while the pardon that comes through the Gospel brings life. They cannot be synchronized. They cannot be blended. History proves that Jesus was right. They would not be. In 70 A.D., the Romans destroyed the temple. They exiled the Jews from their homeland and they would stay away from there until 1948 when Israel would become a nation once again. The Judaism of Jesus' day when the temple was destroyed would never again exist. That form of Judaism ended in the exile. There is no longer animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Judaism would never again practice that. The new thing God was doing required a new form and a new spirit and a new way. What Jesus said next was quite revealing as well. 
He didn't denigrate the old for the new. He simply spoke the truth when he said some will prefer old wine to new wine. Some will reject the new for the old. Some will reject Jesus and the Gospel for the law. So what do these parables mean? How are we supposed to understand them? Well, first let me say this. I am not suggesting to you that this means that the old covenant of the law is irrelevant. It is not irrelevant. Remember that it is part of God's redemptive plan for the history of humanity in the world. And that redemptive plan is progressively being revealed to us by God. It was foretold in the Garden of Eden when the first sin brought about the fall of humanity and the world. It was foretold again when God set apart Abraham and his descendants to be a nation, a great nation, that his redemptive work would come through. It was revealed further when Moses gave the law, which provides for us holy living, so that we understand what sin is, and we understand what God expects, but also so that we understand we are in capable of this without God's help. We cannot do it in our own strength. And it was revealed further in the Gospel, in the cross of Christ, in the sacrificial death when Jesus paid the debt for sin. And forgiveness from then on did not come by any blood other than His blood that was shed on that cross. Once and for all time, forgiveness comes through faith. It is by grace, through faith, in Jesus, and the saving work He has done upon the cross that He is both Savior and Lord. We need the old covenant of the law so that we might embrace the new covenant of the Gospel. This is why it says in Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but rather through the law we become conscious of sin. I've told you all that my dad was a police officer. And he was a good old-fashioned tough guy. And he could be hard. And believe me when I say he could toe the line and make you toe the line. So when I came to saving faith in Jesus, it was so different for me. Grace. Grace. Mercy. And even to this day, 
when people show me grace and kindness. I may not cry on the outside, but on the inside, I have tears because I'm so undeserving of such kindness. I'm wrecked by it. Never the same because of it. When my daughters were born and my wife and I talked about raising our kids, I was adamant that we would not raise them in the way my father raised them. And my wife was grateful for that because she had heard the stories. We were going to raise our daughters in grace. Grace was going to abound in our home until they got to almost junior high age. Yeah, laugh. It was hilarious. Our house was out of control. We had taught them the difference between right and wrong, but we didn't hold them real accountable because after all, we weren't into the law. We were into grace. So we were constantly excusing what the law was condemning. At least that's how they were taking it. Fortunately, we were smart enough to get help. And we began applying the law and consequences to things and boundaries. Because grace without the law just becomes enabling. There are no limits. There's no understanding of mercy. And fortunately, as the girls have grown up, and as we've kept to our boundaries in the law and done it together, they have come to a much better understanding and have a certain gratitude now for grace and mercy when it comes their way, rather than an expectation that it should always be there. So in no way do I want you to assume that I'm saying the old is irrelevant. It is not. It is not. And if we're to understand this, then let me say in a very practical way, if you have been trying to live your life as a good, moral person, doing right by everybody, because that's the right thing to do. Well, good for you. But if you're honest about it, you know that you are failing miserably at it. If not miserably, you're definitely failing at it. And the law condemns you for failure. But God's love and mercy pardon you. And I would encourage you to believe upon Jesus and the cross. To trust that He is the manifestation of God who took all of that upon Himself.
and the way that we are seeking does not come through us, but it comes through Him. And through the Holy Spirit that He sends to us to empower us to live more and more like Him. What else do these parables mean for us? How do they encourage us to deal with change, the new normals in our lives? Well, let me say this. They warn us. These parables provide a warning for us. First, they warn us about thinking that we always know what is best. The scribes and the Pharisees thought they knew what was best. They thought the religious tradition provided what was best. And they wanted everything to fit into that thinking. But if God is truly sovereign, then He can and does do a new thing in His sovereignty with His people. And we must acknowledge that. So this is what I would say to you. If God is doing a new thing in your life, instead of resisting it, ask God about this new thing and what God wants you to learn from it. And then ask God to give you the grace and measure of His Spirit so that you can deal with it. Because he will give you what you need to deal with it. Here's another thing the parables warn us about. They warn us about holding on to the past too tightly. We need to leave room for the new things that God does in our lives. We have just gone through a series of Isaiah. At one point, in Isaiah's word to the people of God, he talks about the new thing that God is doing. Don't hold on too tightly to the past. Leave room for the new thing. God wants us to learn and to grow. And that means he's going to stretch us out of our comfort zone. God created us so that we would continue to grow more and more and more into the image of his son and into this relationship with him. And if that is true, then the way we were created we will be growing in Him throughout eternity. But the tendency for us will want to be to stop. To get to that comfortable place and to stay there and be stuck. But that's just our fallen nature. So don't hold too 
tightly to the past. Here's the third warning. Don't try to make everything blend together. Some things just can't be blended together, like the law and the gospel. Let go of the past and embrace the new normal. That's what I would say. Acknowledge the tension and the anxiety you're having with it, but trust that if God is bringing a new thing into your life, He's also bringing the Spirit in a way you need it so that you can live in that new thing. Some of you have challenges that you may be facing in your relationship and you don't know how you are going to rise up to that challenge. Because you look at it and you say, there's no way I can be that. There's no way I can do that. That's true. But if God's Word says that you get to be a new creation every day in Christ, then why can't God bring that about in your life? If you will submit yourself to Him. To Him. Here's the last thing from these parables that it teaches. And this is a great point. Maybe the most important, that Jesus is the great change agent of God. He's ushered in a new time. He's ushered in the Holy Spirit. And He will help us to deal with each and every new normal in our life if we will submit ourselves to Him. With His help through the Holy Spirit, we're going to be able to embrace every new thing and every new challenge and every new normal, whether God has allowed that in our life or whether God has brought that into our life. Amen? You sound so happy to receive that word. Well, I have one more application, and this is personal. Because this is something I want to say to you while I am still your senior pastor. I have been in full-time pastoral ministry. I will have completed 40 years at the end of this year. And I have learned a ton of stuff. More than I ever wanted to. So, here's what I'm going to say to you. It's been my experience that church people often resist the new thing that God wants to do with them. And if you think I'm kidding you, I could bring a host of pastors up here who would love to tell you how his church is resisting the new thing that God wants to do with them. I remember as a young man, I just wanted to say to people, hey, leave, stay, get on board, but get out of the way. Because so many of them were in the way. Not very smart of me, was it? But God was teaching me. 
And I learned that he was doing something with all of us. And it was good. And sometimes it was hard. So let me say to you, have confidence in God. Don't be afraid of the new thing that God is doing. And by your confidence in God, have confidence in Pastor Tim, who God has placed as our senior pastor. I do. Trust that God has anointed Pastor Tim for this mantle of responsibility. And this is something I want you to consider about this. That wisdom is born of experience. And experience comes from making mistakes. And then learning from them. And the best leaders are the wisest leaders. Because they've made lots of mistakes and they've learned from every one of them. Make sure that there's plenty of grace abounding in this congregation for each other and for your leadership. All your leadership. Here's the second thing I want to say to you all. Don't compare what has been done in the past or the recent past, either the the distant past or the recent past, with the present or the future. Let the new thing that God is doing be the new thing. Let the new thing be in new wineskins. Let go of the past, embrace the present, and work toward the future together, together with God's help. Can I hear an amen to that? That's good. Here's the big idea today. It's this, honor the Lord by letting go of the old and embracing the new and the new things God does or allows in your life. That is my encouragement to all of you, and it is my admonition to myself. And I thank you for letting me preach this particular word to you at this particular time. And I hope that as a church together, we will take it to heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new thing that you did through Jesus. We thank you that we are the recipients of the Holy Spirit that comes because of the outpouring of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to do new things and you continue to sanctify and grow us. I pray that you will help each person here to deal with the new things in their individual lives. And to remember the lessons 
from your word today. And I pray that you will help us together to embrace the new thing that you want to do with us together here at North Suburban Church with Pastor Tim as our leader. I pray that you will fill us with an outpouring of your spirit. May there be fresh wind and fresh fire. And I pray that it would be to your glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said,